0: Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Stefan Robini, and I will be your host for this new season, bringing you the best talks from the DocSF Experience 2021. Now, after our discussions on such hot topics as virtual humans and digital therapeutics, we refocused on the here and now with a COVID-19 orthopedic update. This is the third time that on DocSF, we tackled this important topic. We asked four of our star speakers from the past to come back and join us for an update on COVID-19. You will not wanna miss it. We'll discuss the epidemiology with Dr. Rutherford, the virology of COVID-19 with Dr. Schwartz, a peek in the situation in Italy with Dr. Zagra, and a review of why leading with empathy in a pandemic was the best leadership style for 2020 and 2021. With that, please join us on the DocSF virtual stage.
1: Picking up from last May, May of 2020, when we were in the midst of the unknown, we were learning about Zoom and the novel coronavirus, how to provide in-person care remotely, and so many other skills we did not know we could master.
0: Right. I mean, like, who knew we could master Zoom? <laughs> anyway, and while terrible things happened... And we acknowledge that Yeah. we learn a lot. Yeah. Actually, we saw a lot. So things we hadn't seen for a long time. There were blue skies in Delhi for the first time in a generation or more. Fish were seen in the canals of Venice and in U.S. stores, we not only ran out of toilet paper, but we also ran out of bicycles because we were getting outside again. And today we're hopeful. You know, we're looking forward to a world that may be forever changed and we may not be quite in the woods yet. We're
1: not. And to help us better understand where we are, and why traffic still just sucks again. Yeah. And what it all means and where we go next. Four of our faculty star from the May conference are back to give us the DocSF 2021
0: COVID-19 orthopedic update. These right. are, drumroll. Right? Drumroll. Yeah. Oh, these are stars. Yeah. So we need to make sure that we acknowledge them as such. Stars for participating again, but because yeah. the stars in their own right. George Rutherford, he's professor of epidemiology and biostatistics here at UCSF. He's back to give us the DocSF 2021 COVID-19 update in terms of the pandemic as it's evolved in the United States. We've got Professor Luigi Zagra, the head of the hip surgery unit. At you say that so
1: well in the Italian. Zagra. Zagra. So yeah, it's that's a beautiful. beautiful. Name actually.
0: Yeah, it really is. And another good one is Galeazzi, Galeazzi Orthopedic yeah. Institute in Milano. That's uh, why we'll you're doing a- these introductions, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. And we'll paint a picture of the state of the situation in Italy, which actually got better, it got worse, and there may be some lessons to learn there. Uh, Professor Brian Schwartz will join us as well in the Department of Infectious Diseases. As you will recall, he gave us the most perfect description of COVID 19 uh, was and would be as a virus. And he talked to us a little bit about the existing, the new knowledge about the virology of C-19 and the emerging variants. And then another great Italian name, Gianfranco Di Maria, who's a senior vice president, managing director, and by the way, a newly minted partner at uh, his firm. Well EPS. done. Yeah. Yes, well done. He just moved to Singapore and he's calling in from there to tell us a little bit about how leadership has changed since his inspiring talk in May of last year, where he reminded us that in times of trouble like this, leaders had to show empathy which is a new
2: a new way of thinking about it, that leadership needs so here we go hi everyone it's a pleasure to talk with you again almost a year later i'm george rutherford i'm a professor of epidemiology at the university of california san francisco and i work in the field of infectious disease epidemiology and obviously in this year i've done nothing else but covid-19 the united states is entering a possibly entering a fourth wave of infection you can see this little tip up here which is in uh, really in a, a couple of areas. One's in Michigan, maybe a little bit in Minnesota, and the others in the kind of the tri uh, city area, the tri state area of New York City, spilling up and into uh, New England and down into the Mid Atlantic states. This is a quite pronounced in Michigan, as you can see. Somewhat less so in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, but kind of cumulatively this adds up. But this, the Michigan outbreak in particular, may be due to a variant. The B117, the so-called UK variant. But that is a new concerning sign in the United States. If you look and see where where cases are occurring, you you can see how Michigan sticks out here. Detroit, by the way, is over here. Uh, So this is sort of suburban Detroit up into Bay City, Flint, those kinds of areas. And then over here, you can see here it's on the Kings and Queens counties in Long Island. New Jersey, a little bit upstate, and over here in Western Connecticut. It's also spilled down here into Delaware and a few other states. Vermont actually has very high rates all of a sudden as well. And here you can see I've listed the five uh, states with the greatest number of cases per capita. Uh, here over the last seven days with Michigan, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. In the United States, we've been quite accomplished uh, in vaccination rollout, and we're vaccinating almost 1.73 million people every uh, every week. You can see over here on the map the proportion of people in states, of all people in the states, including children, who've gotten at least a single dose of uh, one of the three vaccines that have been authorized in the United States. And for those of you in Europe. Those are the Pfizer, Pfizer-BNT, the uh, Moderna vaccines, and then the Johnson & Johnson Janssen single-dose vaccine. You can see that we've done about the same amount of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines here with relatively small contributions from Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson is really intriguing because it's a single-dose formulation and has some uh, real specific uses, for instance, in people who are who are homeless and or in the face of outbreaks potentially. At the current pace, we would expect to have about 80% of people vaccinated by early to mid-July, which is about where we think that herd immunity lies. And if you want some estimates of herd immunity, if you say it starts at maybe 70% and goes up, this gives you an idea of where total immunity, this would be from people, this would be a combination of vaccination plus naturally acquired immunity, assuming that naturally acquired immunity doesn't wane. You can see how it gets us up into the realm of herd immunity, and if here again in, in early July, uh, but with vaccine, it'll be pushed out a little bit more. This obviously is affected if there's a lot more transmission, if there are the emergence of really bad variants, and uh, or if there's uh, breakdowns in the supplies of vaccine. Now, a couple of things that have come out in the last uh, few days. One is looking at the uh, rates of reinfection following vaccination in the U.S., This is from two medical centers in Southern California, University of California, San Diego and UCLA. And of their their 4,167 healthcare workers uh, who've been followed after 15 days or more after their second dose of either either the two mRNA vaccines, you can see that seven of them became infected. Here at the University of Texas Southwest Medical Center in Dallas, you can see that of the people who are who have been vaccinated, four out of 8,121 became uh, infected. So that's all good news. Uh, Now CDC has pushed that and has done vaccine effectiveness studies, which have also looked for not only clinical disease, but asymptomatic infection. And for people who are fully immunized with 14 days after a second dose, 14 or more days after a second dose, the vaccine effectiveness is 90%. And that includes asymptomatic carriage. Uh, the actual true vaccine, the, the vaccine effectiveness for symptomatic disease is substantially higher, but this includes asymptomatic infection as well. I finally, worldwide, uh, there are large outbreaks in Brazil and other parts of South America, which involve these more difficult variants. In Europe, we're now entering what amounts to a third wave of the epidemic. And this might have been a third wave back here, but this is clearly uh, a third wave. And in India, there's been a a much bigger, India's here in purple, there's been a much more kind of expanded outbreak here over the last few weeks. In Europe, this gives you an idea of a density map of where cases are occurring, Uh, but you can see on a a per capita basis, you know, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, Estonia, uh, Bulgaria are all up there. And if you look at total numbers of cases, France, Poland, Turkey, Italy, Germany, Ukraine, and then it drops off uh, from Russia on down. And you can see the UK down here, reason this list is so long is I wanted to get to the UK, which has had quite an aggressive vaccination policy and has done it somewhat differently in that tried to get everybody in the population a single dose. So this gives you an idea of, and in the face of some substantial challenges with variants as well. But this gives you an idea of of what a single vaccine strategy will get you. And then finally, just a cautionary note, uh, here we are in South Beach, Miami. Mask, mask, kind of a mask. I think this guy might have something around his neck. He doesn't have his pants on, but he has something around his neck. And I'll, I'll throw in with you if you can find another mask here. This is the kind of event that with lo- with hundreds of thousands of people coming to South Beach and Miami, and then we're going home all over the South and Midwest and up the Eastern seaboard, that is going to lead to uh, to spreading, and this is something that I know CDC is very concerned about, and we're worried uh, as well. Not so much in the West; this is a little too far afield for our uh, spring breakers. But it's a it's the kind of thing that can really lead to a lot of transmission in places where these individuals have come from. Hello,
1: everyone. I'm Luigi Zagra from Italy. I work in Galeazzi, Milan, Instituto Ortopedico. And then will speak about my experience nowadays in Italy with COVID in 2021. It's one year when we met the first time in our meeting, the COVID-19, the orthopedic response, it was an amazing meeting. And at that time, Italy was the eye of the storm. But after one year is not much, much better. You can see that in Europe, Italy is still the country with the greatest number of deaths. Unfortunately, only UK is more, And Lombardia, my region, which is in the North of Italy and last year accounted for 60% of the old deaths is now a bit better. We are in the orange areas, or Italy is divided in different reds or orange regions. We are orange, but we are not so good. As you can see, huge number of deaths, 27% are in my region, more than 32,000 deaths for COVID. So it's still a dramatic situation. And you can see how it moves in Italy with the first, then a good time, then the second, and now the third way. While in the meantime, vaccination projects is going on. What about my activity? What about my hospital? I am an orthopedic surgeon. I'm mainly a hip surgeon, and they work in this hospital. We published our data last year about the first way. And during that time, we had the stop of elective surgery and outpatient in the whole period, we had 70% less selective surgeries, but we increased of the same amount of the emergency because in the meantime, we were a forestry center for minor trauma. So we got a lot of patients that cannot be operating in general hospital because they were fully dedicated to COVID in our hospital. We decreased dramatically our rehabilitation department and our rehabilitation activity, especially at total joints. We are the hospital in Italy with the greatest number of total joints per year, And they decreased 76.5% in that time. And rehabilitation decreased even more. But this is the situation that we faced last year during the first wave. Then things went a bit better. From April in June, the OR, you can see the OR that were closed. I showed you this last year where they closed with the wall part of the OR. Now it was open again, at least for restarting some activity in June. And then in September, even my department, you can see last year picture from my last year presentation, it was closed for COVID. My office was closed because of that, because it wasn't signed. And then we partially reopened in September. The office is open. The department is working with all the safe measures. So progressive restating, but fun for user volumes. Since May, June, 2020, 80% of activity in September, October, 2020. But then the second wave came. Surgical activity, first wave compared to the second wave was different. We had elective surgery that was preserved to the more demanding cases, less planned, but again, more urgent cases with more COVID-positive patients in that time. Outpatient that went close to zero. This is a picture, again, from last year's presentation with the empty waiting room. Now it's not so much crowded that you can see the number increased, but again, the outpatient dramatically decreased compared to the same time period of, last, of the year before 2019. What was the main important thing about that? A great pressure, a great initiative about telemedicine. We increased a lot about this. It was quite something new in Italy, but you can see how it improved along the months and how we promoted it both in our website and inside in the hospital, to do telemedicine, to have a consultation with your doctor on virtual mode. We also improve atomic X-rays for patients that are not able to move to the hospital to reduce the number of people in the hospital. Now activities nowadays moves according to pandemic and health authority. Swap tests for all the patients before admission. No relatives still admitted to departments. Limited number of outpatients at the hospital while vaccination is, of course, moving on. And we are moving according to the pandemic. And again, they will present some true life stories of nowadays, I will update you. I showed you last year, Maria Teresa, 89 years old, diabetes, in bed, healed, bed sore, scheduled for surgery on 10 March, 2020, postponed. She got her THA and now she's happy with that and can move freely. Or Fernando, 77 years, multiple revision before, infected, was at home for some fever at that time after the first stage in February, 2020, He got his second stage, just two months delay. Now it works. And Savino, this is a different story because Savino lives 1,500 kilometers from Milan. He got a revision in February last year, but he also got COVID during his presence in Milan. So now he's afraid, even if he's extremely painful, needed a surgery on the other hip, but he's afraid to come and get his surgery. So this is the situation that we see nowadays. Afraid patients or Marco, another situation, just operated a revision. His a psychiatry, this is okay, but he was six months with this dual mobility, dislocated hips, and you can see clear signs. We're seeing more or more of these extreme cases. Or like this, Antonietta, eight years, type pain since four months, no consultation at all. Now in the emergency room, she's tested for COVID. You need to be isolated for some day before the results of that. So. Again, difficult situation. In conclusion, you can see in red the differences compared to last year, my update. Things are still changing every day. Hopefully, we have overcome the worst scenario, but not out. Flexibility and collaboration, still needed. Your safety, the safety of the doctor, the healthcare, is patient safety. Postpone, if possible, the surgery, still now. But you need a safe journey for everyone, but because we are not yet in the standard time. And finally, this is a still great opportunity for personal question, as I mentioned last year. Why did I decide to become a doctor? No time for that now, but how can I be useful for my community? First as a surgeon, but then in medical education and innovation and wealth. Telemedicine was a very good example for that in our hospital. And I thank you very much for your attention.
3: Hi, this is Brian Schwartz. I'm a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm gonna spend a little time today talking about COVID-19. Where are we a year later? Worldwide, we have over 143 million cases with 3 million deaths. In the United States, we've had over 31 million cases with over 568,000 deaths. We are at the beginning of a fourth wave, but we're hopeful that this wave will be quite minimal with the dissemination of vaccines across the United States. COVID-19 has highlighted something really important. It has highlighted structural racism is a important factor in our healthcare and that our Black, Native American, and Latinx patients have suffered disproportionately COVID-19 disease. We have also had a much greater understanding about transmission of respiratory viruses. And our initial thought of the idea of droplets versus aerosols has come into question. Although most patients who were infected were infected at short distance, similar to the way that we think about droplets, there were some patients who were infected in a manner suggesting aerosols at longer distances, mostly in indoor, unventilated settings, as well as in healthcare settings. What we did identify, though, that fomites are not an important mode of transmission. One of the superpowers of SARS-CoV-2 is its ability to infect patients who have no symptoms. And we realized very early on in the pandemic that our patients who were asymptomatic had very high levels of virus and were able to transmit to many others. Not only were patients before they developed symptoms able to transmit the infection, but we also found out about 40% of the patients may never Develop any symptoms, but can be quite infective to others. We also learned that SARS CoV 2 is not influenza. And we learned that SARS CoV 2 binds to the ACE2 receptor, and then patients can go on to develop a fulminant respiratory failure. But when we looked at the immunology behind this and what the immune system of the human is seeing, it is looking at COVID 19 very different than it is in influenza. And this study shows what two very different viruses they really are. This really influences the way that we think about treatment as well. We've identified kind of two areas where we go after treatment for SARS-CoV-2. One, early on in infection, we try to directly inhibit the virus. The drug that we have found to be most effective is an antiviral called remdesivir. Unfortunately, it's only available IV. We've also identified that monoclonal antibodies when they're given as infusions in the outpatient setting have been very effective in preventing people from requiring hospitalization. Later on in the course of illness, we have found that this robust and out of control immune response can be checked with corticosteroids. And there have been great studies to show that their corticosteroids are very effective in improving mortality. Other drugs that have been shown to improve outcomes are JAK inhibitors and IL-6 receptor blockers. I think the saving grace for this pandemic have been the arrival of vaccines. Here in the U.S. in late 2020, um, we had two mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine that received early emergency use authorization from the FDA. And now we have a third vaccine, an adenovirus vector vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. As of today, these are available to all persons in the U.S., 16 years and older. And so far, 26% of U.S. residents are fully vaccinated. 40% have received one shot. And studies from the CDC have showed that the real-world experience with these vaccines in the U.S. remain very high efficacy, with over 90% efficacy in the U.S. The U.S., however, we want to remember, is way ahead of many other countries and that we need to be able to get vaccines in the arms of people around the world. Variants are a really important thing that we've been learning about. We expect variants to happen. RNA viruses mutate, and particularly mutations at the spike protein. When you have mutations at the spike protein where it binds, you could have increased inability to infect, but you could also lose some of the ability of our immune system to recognize that virus and prevent recurrent infection. It has the possibility to prevent things like monoclonal antibodies from working, and it also has the ability for vaccines to become ineffective. So far, we're in pretty good shape. I think many of you are aware of the different variants. The B117 has had no impact on vaccine or monoclonal antibody efficacy, although it has shown a marked increase in transmissibility and possibly some increase in severe illness. The P1 variant in Brazil um, has had no impact on vaccine efficacy, although it is resistant to some monoclonal antibodies. The B1351 out of South Africa is the one that we've been worrying the most about because it has had some impact on vaccine efficacy. We've seen for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines some redu- reduction in neutralizing antibody titers, although we believe that these vaccines still have the ability to protect us from disease. Some clinical studies have shown a reduced efficacy of the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson vaccines. Although patients may have had mild disease, there were very few patients that had severe illness. And so we believe that they may be still efficacious there as well. And in the US, the West Coast or California variant has shown some resistance to monoclonal antibodies, but no impact on vaccine efficacy. So are we close to the end? I do believe that we are getting very close, but we're only gonna get to the end of this with high vaccine uptake and doing it quickly here in the US. We need to disseminate vaccines worldwide We need to keep masking and distancing for those who are unvaccinated and remain vigilant um, at identifying variants and hopeful that more resistant variants don't emerge.
4: Hello, uh, DocSF community, and uh, thank you for uh, inviting me here. For those who were present last year, I had the opportunity to speak about uh, what successful leaders were doing or what what were our insights about how successful leaders were leading through the crisis. And um, if um, if you remember, there were three things that successful leaders were able to do and doing very well throughout the initial stages of the pandemic. The first one was um, making their people understand how to bring value and, and how to leverage on the capabilities that they had in the moment of the crisis. The other great behavior of leaders was about empowering them to influence whatever was the environment that they had around them, the people that they had around them, and how to do that successfully, and the third level was about creating connections, which was one of the things that mostly, most actually, of the people were really suffering in uh, in working from home and, and getting the extraordinary moment of uh, of the crisis. Now, um, as we have gone through a bit more than a year now from when we started to uh, investigating what successful leaders were doing, we came up with uh, with a number of additional insights, and uh, we've been uh, doing some research with, uh, with, with leaders around the globe. And um, and what we saw actually is that this has been a very, uh, we've, we've called it a very messy environment uh, we've been going through. And uh, nobody of us has still any of the answers. But in this messy environment, we identified five traits of uh, successful leaders. And uh, we have identified them uh, through this acronymous which is indeed messy. And uh, the five words that come with it are multiplying perspective, emotional connection, seizing momentum, sensing the future, and your ego. Now I'd like to focus on three only of these given uh, the time constraint that we have. And uh, I'll start with the last one, your ego. One of the things that we've seen throughout this crisis is that the old paradigm of um, leadership, the so-called superhero syndrome, Being strong and holding on to your expertise and being the one that does the tough calls as a leader, that has gone a little bit out of scope and out of date. The leaders that have been more successful have been those leaders that have shown the power of not knowing. The leaders that have had the courage to show their vulnerabilities. Those leaders that have been curious over time, have been humble and letting go of that leader-centric view. It's not a comfortable way of doing so if you are a traditional leader. Showing vulnerability has been one of the key things that has created bond and trust with the people in the organizations, especially in the last 12 to 14 months. Another aspect I'd like to focus on is the E of the emotional connection. Typically, leadership has been comfortable in that space of uh, we only talk about business here, right? leaders feel safe behind a professional veneer and you know, all of the ritual that come in that space of uh, power and rituals, symbols, et cetera, that, that has been typical, completely been disrupted actually. What people and teams have seen as being successful or actually has created even further trust has been uh, looking at leaders that have had the courage to talk about emotive of personal issues being open about about bad news and showing compassion. So creating that human connection with the teams, which is everything but easy, especially if uh, you have not been able or you have not been used to talking about issues which are very personal very often. But what really has made the difference in this year is understanding what is happening to the people's life. And especially behind the Zoom camera or uh, or a team's uh, meeting, it's not so easy to understand that. So, creating that human connection has been really one of the key aspects of uh, this last uh, 12 to 14 months. The other aspects I'd like to focus on is about seizing uh, momentum. And uh, it's the aspect of uh, leadership switching from a focus on processes, which are typically the annual strategy or budgeting meeting, the quarterly result re- uh, review, and Uh, the the performance management process, which is typically so processed, switching that to doing your job in the moment and being responsive in the moment of things happening, focusing on outcomes more than processes and being change ready. Uh, One example of that is instead of going into a typically yearly or every six months performance conversation with teams, doing it regularly as things happen over time and going into that continuous feedback uh, process. The other two aspects I will not focus on, focus on at the moment is sensing the future and multiplying perspective. If you're curious about it, do search about this paper uh, on our website, www.pts.com uh, it, it, It's an interesting piece of research about what we've seen being successful leadership in these messy, messy times. Thank you very much for your attention, and uh, hope to see you soon. And uh, good luck, Stefano, with uh, with the DocSF, and uh, to the whole community of DocSF. Uh, best greetings.
0: Outstanding. We're we're here joined now by uh, Luigi Zagra, Professor Luigi Zagra from Milano, and Professor George Rutherford from here at UCSF. Thank you for joining us, Luigi. It's like seven thirty your time, right? Seven twenty-two. Correct. Yeah. And George, you're around the corner, so you're at the same time as me. <laughs> All right. So listen, we had some amazing discussions today. Updates on the virology, updates on the leadership side. But with you guys, we can get down a little more into the into the aspects of uh, how we going to live this experience. So the question on anybody's mind, George, when can we go back to a wedding, to an opera, to an indoor situation? When do you think it's going to be safe in the United States to do that, from a oh. medical
2: perspective? <laughs> because, the United States is a more complicated question. You know, we have 50 plus different outbreaks in the United States and probably a little easier to answer it for California. But I think that President Biden has put July 4th out there as a target date. I think that's as reasonable a target date as any. I think there will need, continue to need precautions. I can't imagine flying across country, especially to a state like Michigan with this um, out of control outbreak right now, or it's coming under control, but it has been out of control without a mask on. I don't care what the data. So, you know, we have to follow it. But I, I think that that kind of midsummer is is probably as reasonable a, a marker marking point as any. But understand that's in the United States. Other regions of the world, with certain exceptions, are lagging a little bit or a lot behind us in getting the populations vaccinated. So European travel, Asian travel, South American travel, African travel, those are all very specific questions. And, um, You'd have to sort of play them one by one by one. Iceland, no problem. Up notch? We should have
0: our own medical meetings in Iceland, Luigi. That's, that's the question. Because Luigi and I tend to go to clinical meetings a lot. And a lot of the audience on this podcast, actually, I think all of us are kind of looking forward to seeing people again, going to actual live meetings. So, do you think that with reasonable masks, checks at the front desk, questionnaires, kind of like we do when we go into a hospital, they will be able to resume in-person clinical meetings at about the same time, July? Or do you think that kind of stuff with large numbers, thousands of people in the Rome, they should wait longer?
2: Well, it or depends on me. how many people, what proportion of people are vaccinated. If you're going to make, require vaccinations, go. Now, if you're not, then it's a more complex question. I'm sorry, Luigi.
1: No, 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 sorry. It, it will be allowed in, the, in Italy. They plan to allow meetings starting from July. But we don't know how, for how many people In which conditions? So it's really an open question mark.
0: Are they going to require vaccination to get in?
1: We don't know at the moment. But anyway, the healthcare—they are all vaccinated now in Italy. We are all vaccinated, but just because we work in the health, but not the population. Population is ten percent. The whole population.
0: So let's talk about these vaccines that have been passed to the whole population. They're incredibly safe, and yet there continues to be concern about that. So first, Luigi. Is there a percentage of population in Italy slash Europe that is concerned about these vaccines for one reason or another? And then George, what's it going to take to persuade folks that uh, these vaccines are safe? So first Luigi and then George.
1: I'm not an expert on this. I can just tell you what is the feeling in the population. There was, unfortunately, as usual, Crazy people against vaccination. There is everywhere in the world that there are very small amounts of crazy people, unfortunately. But in Italy and in Europe, you had the problem with one of these vaccines, you know, the one from AstraZeneca that was reported to have some adverse effects. So it was the occasion for these crazy people to advertise against. So there was an amount of population that said, Oh, I don't want to get this vaccine. I want another one. But we don't have the provision for the old ones. We got the Pfizer at the beginning because we are healthcare so we got this. And then we went out with the others. And so there was some problems with this. We know so we are going on with the process, but it's a, it's a bit complicated. The problem is mainly yeah. supplies.
2: George, what's going to take? So in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices yesterday voted, to, voted 10 to 4 to start up again with the Johnson & Johnson adenovirus single-dose vectored vaccine. If you look at the data, the data are pretty compelling for women under 50. And actually my daughter, who's my who's my oracle these days, you know, <laughs> beats out everything I say. I told her that I, I wouldn't recommend it for women under 50 if there's alternatives. And the nice thing here is that we have three vaccines that are circulating. We may get Novavax, which is a protein vaccine pretty soon now as as well. But our big next big push is to get adolescents vaccinated down to 12 years of age. And I think that'll probably come down I was thinking it'll come down next week from FDA and with the uh, extension of the emergency use application. It may actually be a couple of weeks after that because they've gotten tied up in the Johnson and Johnson problems. Interestingly, in Europe, at least a couple of countries, Hungary comes to mind, have gone to the Russian vaccine uh, mm-hmm. because their supplies are so so short, which makes everybody crazy in the EU I guess I don't you know it's what I read in That's, the paper. Sputnik was quite effective is an adenovirus vaccine as well as is the Can sino vaccine. Which may be responsible for outbreak in Chile. It, it has a relatively lower effectiveness, something on the order of the low sixties. And Chile is a population that's one of these really highly vaccinated populations, like fifty percent of people are vaccinated, mm. and they're still sustaining a big outbreak. And I think that might be what's under is underlying. You
0: mentioned a protein vaccine. Tell us a little yeah. more about that. A new one, the Nova.
2: Mm-hmm. Sure, it's called Nova Vaccine. It's a it's like hepatitis B surface antigen. You know, like we give for hepatitis B vaccine but it's got some, you know, space age coating on it. Um, so it can actually be uh, seen and recognized more efficiently by the immune system. I would have thought it was going to come out in April. Maybe it's a little bit longer now, but I think that'll come into the, that's a two dose vaccine as well. So, you know, as long as we have plenty of Pfizer and Moderna, there's no reason to, you know, we probably don't need an extra vaccine, but the, you know, our neighbors, the Canadians and the Mexicans do. Um, so it's, I think it's, you know, I think the more the merrier, the more choices we have, the better I'd also come back to the russian and the chinese vaccines they have not reported this uh thrombocytopenic thrombosis as a uh, as a problem and they supposedly have looked for them but you know
0: and there's always a question right there isn't it so you showed us a picture of, of south beach a lot of young people who feel have always felt this in some ways they were privileged that this is not a disease that, uh, that kills them for sure and if it and if it does make them sick, they'll all get past it. That's their, that, that was their experience. A, was that ever true? And B, if it was, is that sort of um, age really the immunity sort of going by the wayside of the new, with the new variants?
2: There is some suggestion. So so it's never really been true. I mean, but it's as a statistical level, it's true. But if you're in an individual case, you know, you're an individual case. I think that it's with the new variants, especially the UK variant, the 117 variant. The British think that that's uh, has caused outbreaks among children. Now, when you get down to what their definition of children is, you'll be pleased to know it's anyone under the age of 24. It was like I was on a WHO panel once, and they wanted to define adults as anyone two and older. You know, we get into lost in the language here a little bit, but I can tell you in in Michigan, the current outbreak, which is being led by B117, the UK variant, seems to have started with youth sports and is has been associated with at least junior high school or late elementary school uh, outbreaks we currently have outbreaks in both Marin County and Berkeley here uh, that are tied to uh, both you know club sports as well as uh, schol- you know intercollegiate inter school sports too
0: well let me go down that route right a little bit because these are outdoor sports where people are still having I thought outdoors was has it's difficult to get COVID outdoors, especially in daylight when there's UV radiation. I mean, oh, yeah,
2: yeah, UV, UV yeah. movie, yeah, But anyway, it's that was that, that's yeah. a way to be dismissive in 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 American. English. Oh, sorry, um, okay. you know, if somebody coughs in your face, it doesn't matter whether you're in a closet or a, you know on the on the face of the moon. You know, you're going to get infected. You're likely to get infected. So it's all about what outdoor provides you is some protection against aerosol or airborne transmission where the virus viral <clears throat> particles float in the air. It doesn't provide any great comfort for direct person to person transmission. Most of the sports have been indoors where these outbreaks have occurred in Michigan and Minnesota. They've been in, in I think, Minnesota. They've been in, in ice hockey. On ice hockey teams. And it's, it's not, we're not talking about the ice or, you know, pounding somebody around. And it's probably talking about the locker rooms as the, as the place transmission goes on. In Nevada, there was an outbreak in a, in a girls volleyball tournament. So again, these are indoor venues. Now, there have been some in soccer teams as well. I'm sorry, Luigi, football teams um and um you know and that's all outdoors so it's all about how close the contact is um and there's nothing magic about being outdoors except you obviate the the risk of aerosol transmission
0: Luigi I want to ask you a question you talked about how the epidemic expedited at-home x-rays like how did you get at-home x-ray and also telehealth acceptance in a country that traditionally has been very digitally backwards frankly there's we just are not a digital country for the most part can you talk a little bit about just what kind of penetrance in the United States? We got up to 100% for a short while. They're all business with virtual. Now it's about 20%. We mentioned that in the first session this morning. Where are you in uh, in Italy?
1: It's not 20% at all, of course, but you, can, you must consider that one year ago, it was 0%. It was nothing. It was never, neither considered in the vast majority of the situation. There were just very few hospitals doing this, but not as a is a consultation in front of the people virtually, but just looking at the exam, just looking in the images, imaging, and whatever. And in the last year, it changed progressively. Now we do it for the minor surgical procedures. The anesthetists do consultation for that by home. Of course, if you have a major surgery or a complicated patient, you ask them to come to the, to the hospital. But for minor surgery, we do it remote. People who are not able to come to the hospital, of course, do it virtually. We can do x-rays at home. That's true, especially for the post-op uh, uh, x-ray control. It's something which is going on, but it's completely different from one year ago. And I, I agree with you. One year ago, Italy was much, much worse than now and worse compared to the US, of course. Yeah. And we are also developing now OR communication for specialists when you use a new implant or where you need to revise an implant that you are not confident in. In the past, we had this the so-called specialist in your room. Now we are developing system for communication, both video and audio from remote. So you can connect with the company while you are operating, telling what is this device, what is this standard, this cone, this set. how I can do this. So the specialist, we are developing this type of system, specialist can control and support you from remote to avoid new people in the OR. Right.
0: These are the main re- fields. Yeah, to keep people out of the operating room, right? To keep yes, them sure. separated, to minimize traffic, if you will. Um, George, have you seen any other recommendations for... Cause I, I mean, at UCSF, it says, so we do the screening test in the morning, we all wear a mask, and everybody got vaccinated. But we have all extremely... wear safety glasses, too. Have I mean, you pardon? You wear safety glasses, too, don't
2: you? Safety glasses all the time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, just, please, just be clear. Do, do my best. Is that... Okay. Oh, I can tell you. There's a great study in China where they uh, it's a case control study in the su- city in uh, Hubei Province, not Wuhan. And um, they actually knew all the everybody who had prescriptions for myopia because you know it's a it's a big oh, centralized right. system. And the risk of being admitted to the hospital with uh, COVID, age matched, age and sex matched, was 13 fold lower if you had a if you had a prescription for glasses. So it that kind of, kind of, had to be myopia. So <laughs> it meant you had to wear them all the time, right? So right, right, right. So it's there you go. There the you go. Point. Group positive, right? Cause and effect.
0: That's a good day. That's okay. 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 I'm a little, I'm a little more correct. I believe, but, but what I was going to say is that our, our transmission rate in the hospital has been extremely low. We've done a very, very good job of controlling that as an issue. Grand San Francisco never had a massive spike, but that really was quite successful. I have a question about those few people that have been vaccinated and get sick. My understanding is that they get sick, but they get they're much less sick. Is that right? It's just that it's like a cold or minimal <laughs> because that gets to the question of people transmitting it. Yeah. People who vaccinated, they say, look, God, why do I have to wear a mask at all? I'm not gonna get it. I'm not gonna transmit it, but actually we can host it for a while, Uh for a period of time? You can get infected.
2: If you're a vaccine failure, you can get infected. We were just looking through our big cohort study today for uh, yesterday afternoon for vaccine failures. And we have like 10. And something like, you know, seven of them have no symptoms and another couple have colds, have, you know, like upper respiratory symptoms.
0: And that's considered Um,
2: a failure. So yeah, those are failures because of PCR positive.
0: Yeah, but if I have been vaccinated, how likely am I to, and I I don't get sick, I don't get PCR positive because what we're told is you can carry the disease to other people. Even if you're vaccinated, that doesn't make sense to me. If
2: you're a vaccine failure, you can get infected. If you're infected, you're infectious. And one thing we think, though, is that people who've been vaccinated who get infected have much lower viral loads, so they may not be as infectious. That's really, that's kind of speculative right now, but um, it seems to be, at least in very preliminary data, maybe holding up. Okay, you know, the US released all its data, all our data recently, and there were 74 people who died from reinfection during reinfection. Out of, out of 66 million people.
0: Pretty good odds. There were yeah. sicker people, I
2: presume. Well, they're older because they got the vaccine first, right? I'm presumably. Oh, right.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the the longevity of the immunity that's conferred by the vaccines and by
2: the disease. Yeah. So we don't know. I mean, I can tell you the first person that we know was infected was infected in December of 2019. So we have 15 months, 16 months follow-up data. And the first vaccine went into somebody's arm in a phase one trial in April, a year ago. So we have 12 months of follow-up. So that's the database. People's neutralizing antibody will wane, but you know we're currently in a situation where people are being constantly re-exposed. So it gets stimulated as well, right? So you can, your memory cells are kicked in. I think that what we're probably looking at between B cell and T cell immunity is pretty long lived immunity for the specific strains that we're exposed to now if we you know if all of a sudden the South African strain sweeps across we may well need an additional mRNA vaccine to confer immunity to that specific strain but it's going to depend on what happens with the variants it's going to depend on what happens around the world so in Europe for instance where they got the A117 variant you know running rampant through eastern europe yeah, you know, the vaccine does a pretty good job of covering that. And I don't think that anybody's looking at, at well, they may be, but um, I, don't, I haven't heard a lot about re-immunizing everybody in Europe. And I think, you know, the primary problem is to get enough people immunized in the first place.
0: There's a note here, uh, one of the questions in the chat box, what about reports people have previously had COVID and, ha- and then getting a more serious reaction to the vaccine?
2: Yeah, those are anecdotal. I think that if you look at the antibody levels and the amount of interferon generated, if you've had COVID, when you get another dose, it's like getting the second dose. If you've been, you know, if you've never been infected with it, so it's associated with higher rates of um, of uh, side effects. But in a, and I think that there's, you could say, as the French do, that there's no reason to give a second dose to people who've already been who've already been infected and then have gotten a single dose. Oh,
0: that makes sense. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us. We're going to uh, call this segment to an end. Thank you very much, you both, for joining us. Thank you. On behalf of all of us at DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco, thanks for listening and for joining our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you're interested in joining our team, participating, or being interviewed on DocSF, please let us know. If not, please join the revolution and listen up for our next podcast.